It's not always clear to us how to operate our lives in this world that we live in. It's not always clear. I don't know. So, sometimes we just miss some things that are going on in life. It's not obvious to us until somebody brings it to our attention. I don't know if you know this or not, but since 1924, the salt that you purchase at the store is not just salt, right? It is, in fact, iodized salt. Now that you see it, you're never going to miss it ever again when you see salt. It's salt that has had iodine added. Why is that? Is it just, you know, is this conspiracy? Is it the government trying to infiltrate? So, you know. No. As it turns out, there's a very important reason for this. Iodine is, a, is an essential micronutrient, and our bodies need iodine to be healthy. It's critical for the operation of our thyroid gland. Uh, our thyroid gland releases critical hormones to the body. Now, we take small amounts, when we eat, we take small amounts of iodine in through different dietary choices, saltwater fish, seaweed, I know which is an essential part of your diet here in the United States, seaweed. Uh, in some cultures it is. Shellfish, yogurt, milk, egg, and cheese. So you can imagine in the United States of America, if you're lactose intolerant, you might not get a lot of iodine in your diet. But if, these not, if, if iodine, if these things are not part of your regular diet, you can starve your body of this micronutrient and it can lead to various health problems up to and including birth defects in children. Now, some intelligent people figured out how to fix this. They just simply added iodine to something that they thought the general public would eat some of, either have their food seasoned with it or, uh, or put it on their food after their food is served, and that is salt. As a result of doing this, Thyroid problems have dropped significantly, and overall thyroid health has improved since the addition of iodine to salt. Now, why do I say all that? I think that we're living in a time, if we're going to be honest with each other for a minute here, which I, I think that we should in church, uh, I want to submit to you this morning that there's a deficiency of something else in our culture today. It's not just within the church, but it does include the church. Uh, but the wider culture today and the thing that is missing is leading to various problems, including spiritual problems. Uh, we're just not as healthy spiritually as we should be. And the something that is deficient in our culture today, I would argue, is joy. So we're going to talk about that this morning. And I'm going to uh, tell you what I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to explain it from God's word and then tell you again. How's that? I think that we as Christians are under the illusion uh, that joy is something that God just gives us, um, and forgive my crass language this morning, but like sprinkling fairy dust over all Christians, just here's some joy. And I would submit to you this morning that what we're going to see in God's word is different than that. The joy that we experience as Christians comes to us with somewhat of intentionality on our part. And I would argue that it comes from two primary sources, joy does. It comes from a frequent reminder of what God has done for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Not only what God has done, but what God is doing in us 
in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's number one. The second thing is maybe a little bit less intuitive, but I think we're going to see it in the text, which is there's an, an, an inescapable reality of life that when we say that we are a certain thing, whatever that thing is, you know, but our lives are lived completely differently than that, that works on us. God gave us this thing called a conscience, right? And to say, for example, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, knowing that while we're saying that, we're living one, two, maybe vast areas of our lives out of obedience to what God has clearly taught, what Jesus clearly taught us, that works on you. God uses our conscience to give us some warnings <laughs> that if we ignore those warnings and our consciences become seared, perhaps what we're left with is just a lack of joy. So we experience joy when, number one, we, we frequently are reminding ourselves of what God has and is doing for us in the personal work of Jesus Christ. And also, when we intentionally align our lives with what we say we are. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and I'm attempting stiltedly, falteringly, not perfectly, to live that way. But I am attempting to live that way. So let's get into the text today. We're going to discover a couple things. Number one, we're going to ask this question. What is the source of our joy, and why is it so important to be joyful today? I think joy is a critical component. I think like iodine, if you take the iodine out of salt, people are going to get going to have problems, going to get sick, right? I think that if we don't work on taking in, experiencing joy on a routine basis, uh, we're going to be a lot less healthy as Christians. So let me take a minute just, just to define joy, and I'm, this is simply how I did it. Uh, in our text, the word in Greek appears, charis, that's the word for, that we're looking at here, and um, it's the experience of gladness. The experience of gladness. That's pretty basic. Don't need a degree to figure that out. But in John 15, which is what we're going to study today, so I invite you to take your Bibles and turn there. In John chapter 15, which is maybe an odd passage for Christmas, but um, nonetheless. In John 15, Jesus is speaking to his disciples as in, in part of what we call the upper room discourse. I say his disciples, but let me add a caveat to that. It's all of his disciples except Judas, who has already exposed himself as the one who will betray Christ and has left the room on his way to go find the people that he's going to bring back to betray Jesus with. Okay, so it's, it's all the disciples minus Jesus. Back to the upper room. This is, a long, this is part of a longer teaching that spans several chapters that Jesus gives shortly before his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. So you can imagine that the mood is likely a bit heavy, but the teaching is rich. So let's just take a moment to read John chapter 15. You have to turn there. I'm not putting it on the screen. Turn there. John chapter 15, 1 through 11. Jesus says this, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. 
And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that, he, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my, word abide, my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So let's just stop right there. And before we even dive into the outline, let me just say this. I want you to recognize the tone that's going on in this, in this part of the discourse. Jesus is saying seemingly very harsh things. Like any, anyone, any branch that doesn't bear fruit, hey, that's going to be thrown away, it's going to wither, it's going to be gathered up and thrown into the fire. And that sounds an awful lot like hell, Right? But then he ends the discourse saying this, and, and I want you to really grab onto this. That this is, he, he tells you in the end why he's saying what he's saying. He's saying, I want you to have the same joy that I have, and I want your joy to be full. And the word full in the Greek means full or complete. Now, I don't know what any of you want for Christmas. I don't know what's on your wish list, but I would think that if anybody in this room could put on their wish list complete joy and get it, right? It'd be, it'd be a good Christmas. Like what we just say, that would be a good Christmas. So yes, there are some difficult things in this passage and we'll get to that, but, but just recognize the intent that Jesus is having as he gives these words to these Disciples, I want you to have my joy and I want your joy to be full. So, let's get into it. First of all, let's talk about false or incomplete joy. Verse 2 says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And, and then down in verse 6 it says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Now, Jesus, in speaking this way, is using an illustration from agriculture, which he often did. He's using a farming illustration, which, which I can relate to. He says that Jesus is the vine or the plant, right? He is the plant. And we are all shoots or branches coming off of that main plant, right? That's what we are. And God is the vine dresser or the farmer, okay? Now, at its root, this is a very, no pun intended, at its root, this is a very basic illustration. 
My dad was a farmer until he retired, and my dad grew on the farm corn and soybeans. And what did my dad want every year? Did he want to go out in the field and find thorns and thistles? No, at the end of the year, when we drove the combine through the field, what we wanted was as much fruit, in our case, corn and soybeans, we wanted as much yield as we could possibly get. And I remember one year, uh, we planted some soybeans, and I don't know what happened, but a specific kind of weed got into the mix, and uh, those weeds were sprouting up, and the soybeans got tall, uh, too tall to cultivate with a tractor, but the, the weeds were still there, and they were robbing the plants of their nutrients, the soybean plants of their nutrients, of their sunlight, and of their water. So we went out there, me, my dad, my mom, my sister, we went out there in the field and we pulled up all these weeds. We disconnected them from the ground so that they would die, so that the soybeans would have much fruit. This is what God wants for us, right? God's goal is to bear fruit. So like any good farmer, God removes the dead plants, gets them out of there. If a, if a plant is bearing fruit, God manipulates it. He prunes it. He maybe cuts off a little bit of the dead parts that are, you know, he does whatever he needs to do to make that plant bear as much fruit as possible. It's a pretty basic illustration, but it does cause people to debate quite a bit. John 15 is, is debated. So let's talk about it. We see, first of all, a failure to abide in Christ, a failure to abide in Christ. And really, I put Peter, but really we see kind of two illustrations around the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We see Peter and we see Judas. And I would argue that they're very different. Peter, I, was, I would argue, is going to be pruned. And, and uh, Judas, I would argue, is... Uh, gonna, he's going to experience something different. Let me, let me define abiding for a minute. Many people, many people, when they talk about what does it mean to abide in Christ, what it means is to remain, okay, in a, you know, like a, the, the, the shoot of the plant needs to remain on the plant, connected to the plant in order to be healthy and grow and everything like that. But in, in, in a spiritual, if we think about this spiritually, what, what this illustration I think is trying to drive at is three things. Abide means, first and foremost, that we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, as our Savior from sin. Number two, we continue to believe on him in terms of that, you know, that what he says is right and good. And third, that we are growing in obedience to him. That's what I think it means to abide, that we, that we trust him as our Savior, that we believe in him, what he says is right, and that we continue to grow in obedience to what he has said. None of us is going to reach perfect obedience but we're going to grow in obedience to what he said. So obedience mean, or abiding means to believe in Jesus and grow in obedience to him. One of Jesus' disciples, Peter, had borne fruit early in his life. When Jesus called him as a disciple and they were on doing ministry, Peter had borne some fruit. But now the temperature has turned up, right? It's, it's, it's tough. Jesus is going to be arrested and he's going to be tried and he's going to be beaten and he's going to be crucified and in that process Jesus tells Peter before the rooster crows you're going to deny me three times and that's what happens Peter does for that moment he has a failure but I want to argue that um, 
what we see throughout the course of Scripture, we see it with King Saul, we see it with King David, we see it all throughout the course of Scripture, that when someone like Peter sins, denies Christ, uh, when someone like Peter does what he does, and they're confronted, which is what Jesus, after Jesus was resurrected and he was on the Sea of Galilee, he met Peter who was back to fishing, Jesus was cooking up some breakfast, and when Peter came ashore, they had that conversation where, you know, Jesus said, hey, do you love me? Feed my sheep. You know, that whole conversation. Peter turns around, right? He turns around, and what we know in the book of Acts is that Peter begins to set his face towards spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. So the rest of his life, church history tells us that Peter was crucified upside down, killed, martyred upside down because he refused to be crucified the same way as Jesus, his Lord. He was pruned. In other words, Peter had stopped bearing fruit and God worked in his life to make Peter into a very fruitful individual. Contrast that with Judas, right? Judas. Judas, uh, well, we don't hear too much of, about him bearing fruit. In fact, uh, as I read my Gospels, as I read the Gospels, I, I, I hear that the disciples are always kind of breathing under their breath a little bit about whether he's being good or bad with the money bag. He was the treasurer of the group. Um, and, and so you, you, you kind of get a feeling that Judas isn't bearing a whole lot of fruit. He's certainly not one of the ones that we hear about doing anything great there. But then Judas uh, leaves the upper room to go, and he will go on to betray Jesus. And when he's confronted with the reality of what he's done, does he repent? Does he turn around? Does he begin to start to bear fruit? No, he takes his life. Will Judas be taken away, gathered, thrown into the fire, burned? Likely, yes. So church, this morning, as we tackle this difficult passage, let me just say this. Let's be careful not to follow Jesus based on what we say alone. In order to abide in Christ, we must trust Jesus as our Savior. We must continue to believe in him, and we have to grow in obedience to what his word teaches. We also see, I, I like the withering example right there, right? Uh, when you starve a plant of water, as I have done many times in my life, because I'm not necessarily that good with plants, but when, I, when you starve a plant of water, it dries up, it withers, and it dies. It's not fruitful anymore. And I want to argue this. When Christians starve themselves of Jesus, right, who is the plant, who is the vine, when we starve ourselves, when we disconnect ourselves from him, our spiritual lives can dry up and become very useless, and there's all kinds of symptoms of this, right? When we're presented with the opportunity to serve someone within the church, we groan. When Sunday rolls around and it's time to go to church, we groan. When the pastor goes a little bit too long, boy, I'm making a case for myself today. When the pastor goes a little bit too long, we groan. There's a situation in 1 Kings, I won't have time to unpack it, but there's a situation in 1 Kings 
where the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom have just split. Israel have just split. The southern kingdom called Judah remains faithful to God and the northern kingdom, King Jeroboam, he, he peels off a whole section of the tribes and he, he creates his own kingdom. But he can't have the people from the northern kingdom going to Jerusalem and the southern kingdom to worship. So what does he do? He tries to establish his own worship center in Bethel in his territory so that the people can worship there. And God sends a prophet, a man of God, from the southern kingdom of Judah to the northern kingdom to confront King Jeroboam, King Jeroboam, the rebel from this, of this new kingdom, to confront him. And as Jeroboam is talking back to this prophet, he stretches out his arm, and his arm withers, dries out, and won't retract. He has to implore the man of God. He has to say, would you please pray for me that my arm will re be restored? And only after the man of God prays for him is his arm restored to movement. Folks, it is dangerous for us to think that we can operate our lives without staying connected to Christ. It, we will dry up. We will wither. We will live a life of joylessness. Don't be fooled. And then futile living, futile living. Judges 13 through 16 tells the story of Samson. You can read it for yourself. Samson was a man who had it all going for him. His mother was barren. She could not bear children. But an angel appeared to his parents and told them that though his mother was barren, that she would have a son, and that son would begin to deliver their nation, Israel, from the hand of their enemies, the Philistines. Yet when he, And when he was born, he was impressively strong and he was impressively smart, and he proceeded to use that strength and those smarts to rally Israel, to save Israel from the Philistines? No. No. To live for the flesh. Instead of uh, marrying an Israelite girl, he wanted to marry a girl from the Philistines who worship a different god. Instead of wanting to like get use his brains to strategize on how they might defeat the uh, Philistines, he used his brains to to win trivia contests at parties. Uh, that's, I'm, I'm, I'm being really loose here. To, to, to show his intelligence at parties to win bets, right? Um, and it, oftentimes his anger was out of control. He would vent his anger on other people. He lived his life completely for himself. And it wasn't until that he was captured through the nefarious activities of Delilah and his head was shaved, and his eyes were gouged out, and he was used as a plaything for the Philistines to entertain them in their temple of Dagon, that he got it, that he understood that there was one true God, and he prayed to that God, and God used him in those last moments of his life, emasculated, embarrassed, ashamed, to push down the temple of Dagon and complete that which he was born for, almost in spite of himself. Folks, when we try to do God's business man's way, it's futile. We, we have been placed here by Jesus Christ to carry out a mission on this earth, to love God, love others, make disciples, and we have to do that. <coughs> we have to do that God's way. So contrast that with complete or full joy. In the rest of this passage, we read about that, right? I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear even more fruit. 
Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. The branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As my Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. What do we see here? We see that we see... The way to go, the way to find joy in this life and have that joy be full is to abide in Christ. And here I point to what I call Peter 2.0, right? After that episode by the Sea of Galilee when Jesus confronted him, Peter made a decision to follow Jesus all the rest of his days. Did he do so perfectly? No, the book of Acts tells us that he had stumbles. But he overcame those and continued to follow Jesus all the days of his life. We see in this text that it's not always going to be easy. In fact, oftentimes, as a Christian, it's going to be hard because God is going to be continuously pruning you, right? Helping you to trim away the things that are holding you back from following him and focusing on the main things. He gave Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 the thorn in the flesh. We're going to, you can read about this on your own. I'm not going to stop here because I want to keep, keep going. He gave Paul the thorn in the flesh, right, to to help him from being conceited, right? And in Hebrews 12, 5 and 6, we read that the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. We're living in a day and age right now where I think that the mentality of most parents is, I just need to give my kid everything they want and make their lives as comfortable as possible. We are in for a catastrophe if that happens. Because life is hard and there will be obstacles in your way. And what we need to be teaching our kids is to overcome those, that adversity and to view that adversity through the lens of Scripture, which is what God is, these, these things that stand in our way, these, these adversities. I know that algebra is hard, but you've got to get through it. We're not going to switch you, just to, we're not going to, switch you to an easier math class. We're going to help you get through it. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The difficult things that God places in our lives, we have to view this through the lens of Scripture, are the things that God is putting in our lives to make us better, to make us more resilient, to help us to overcome the challenges that God has placed down the road that we need to be prepared for. So he's going he's gonna to prune. Many Christians I've seen, rec- when, they, when they hit adversity in this life, they somehow reconcile that God doesn't love them or like them anymore. He told us in his word that he would be doing some pruning, and that the reason for that pruning is so that you may have joy and that your joy may be full. He's told us it's right here. Complete or full joy is also included in being fruitful, is being fruitful. Again, there's, there's, all these, there's all this misinformation out there in the world that says that if you are living the good life, then you will have 
vast abundance and you will, you know, you'll be able to buy whatever you want and have whatever you want. No, no, no. God says that if you want to have joy in this world, then complete the mission that I put you here to complete. Do the best you can at fulfilling the mission, being fruitful in the mission. The Apostle Paul was a man who did not like what God was doing. He did not like the Christian church. He persecuted the church. He was overseeing the coats when they stoned Stephen in the book of Acts. And yet when Paul had an encounter with uh, the resurrected and risen Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, Paul turned and became fruitful, very fruitful in his life and in his ministry. Paul may, may be the most prolific church planter who ever lived. Enjoying God's love. It talks about that in this text too. That uh, uh, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Enjoying God's love. And this is, again, back to that. We have to remind ourselves of this on a routine basis. What are we doing here in this room right now? What are we doing? What is going on? Why are we here? I hope that if you're anything like me, you're here because you recognize that the God who created the universe and designed us saw that we had rebelled against him and recognized that left in our rebellion against him, we would have to be separated from him forever in hell. And, and the God of the universe decided that blood had to be shed, right, for the forgiveness of sins, and that the blood that was going to be shed was not the blood of just goats and rams, although that, was, that pointed forward to the ultimate sacrifice, that, that he wasn't going to wipe out the whole earth, right, to, to pay for that sacrifice, because that would never work, right? When Noah and the flood happened, and Noah and his small family survived the flood in the ark that God asked them to build, sin remained in the hearts of Noah and his children. No, God know, knew that in order to pay the penalty for our sin, Someone would have to die who was perfect, and that perfect one was Jesus Christ. And so we gather here because God has told us that it is good for us to gather, to have fellowship, meaning not just to talk about the bucks and the weathers, right? But the bucks and the weather, but to talk about our relationship with Christ and is it growing? To have the opportunity to serve one another and to gather ourselves together and sing songs to the Lord, to worship him with our voices and to set our minds to reading and studying his word in the scripture. That's why we're here. This is a celebration of what has happened to us and hope and anticipation for what is to come for us. That's why we're here. We get to enjoy God's love by reminding ourselves frequently of this. And I would encourage you that if you want to find real joy, don't just enjoy it every Sunday. Enjoy it as part of your daily time in God's word in passages like Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, and many, many others. All right, let me wrap up, by, let me wrap up with this last point. This is why joy is important in our lives today. And um, this is just a sampling, right? This is just a sampling 
of what we're really experiencing in this life if we are in Christ Jesus. The idea that hope is real, we covered this a few weeks back, but we are not just people that are on this earth and are going to die and turn back to dust, right? That's not what we're experiencing here. What we're experiencing here is the fact that Jesus was a real man, that he really did come to this earth, that both biblical and extra-biblical uh, documentation point to the fact that he died on the cross and many say many witnesses report that he rose again on the third day and I don't know I don't know the last time you checked that doesn't happen and so the 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 reality that the resurrection is real and the reality that Jesus has given us things has given us teachings that have been preserved for us in his word points to the reality that what Jesus has said is true. And what he said is that when we die, we're going to be with him and that he's going to return someday and set this all straight. I'm just as frustrated as many of you are by the corruption that we see in our world today. Not just in the government, but everywhere. I am frustrated by it. It drives me nuts. But if I don't disconnect myself from the mainstream media and and whatever's going on in the world through different various news sources and get my head into what the scripture says about who I am and where I'm going when I die, I will lose joy. So don't be the type of people that are going to just get up in the morning and say, well, I'm just going to drown myself in the corruption nonsense. And then wonder why you have a joyless existence. Immerse yourself for some time every day in the reality of what God has done for us. And part of what God has done for us is this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What else do we see? Victory is possible. Victory over what? Victory over sin and temptation. Because God has illuminated for us in his word through the Holy Spirit what he has for us and he's told us the difference between right and wrong i know the world struggles with that today but he's given us very clear direction about how we should live how we should not live and he's given us the holy spirit to take up residence in our lives to activate that so that we can say this so that paul can say this no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man god is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape but with the temptation, yeah, so that you may be able to endure it. Sin, which has so many people enslaved, does not need to be your slave master. Victory is possible. Restoration is possible. Restoration, what I'm talking about, not just restoration uh, when we die and we're, when we're with God, but like with Peter, when he denied Christ three times, and then he met him in the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus was talking to him, he had the opportunity while he was still in this life to turn around and to go God's way. And that's exactly what he did. He repented. Acts 3, 19, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that the time of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. You can be restored to a life that is meaningful and filled with joy 
And that only comes by following Jesus Christ. Freedom is possible. Freedom from what? Freedom from what? Freedom from all of Satan's traps that he's setting all around us. When you leave this place and you go home and you turn on whatever, whatever screen or radio station of choice, you are going to be bombarded with satanic traps and propaganda. It's the reality of the life that we live. Amen? You're going to be told that uh, our, our, uh, our, our Congress has decided to redefine what marriage is. And the definition of marriage changed. It is not. Not according to God. Not one iota has the definition of marriage changed, even if our nation, if, if our elected leaders recognize it as such, the definition has not changed. We're not going to live as if it has. And we're going to be cajoled. We're going to be, we're going to be, and so you can be free from that. How? Well, by knowing what the truth is. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We do not have to give in to Satan's traps, to his propaganda, to his uh, lies about who we are. The world is telling everyone right now that, that we Christians are haters, that we hate people. Nothing can be further from the truth. Our job, our mandate is to love and to share with people the love of Jesus Christ by sharing with him, with them the truth of his word. So many other things. I'm out of time here. Rest is possible. Hebrews 3 and 4. Just read it. Uh, joy in this life is possible. Philippians 4, 4 through 8. Uh, Pastor Aaron talked about this uh, last week, I believe. And these possibilities, the reality of hope and victory, restoration, freedom, rest, and joy, all of these possibilities are only true because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus chose to rescue people with love. God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, We are looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. One last point I'll make, and then I'll close. There's a lot of talk in this world about love, and that's actually the last section of our, that's the last sermon that'll happen on Christmas Day, love. There's a lot of talk about this, about love in this world, and that it's a feeling, and that you can't control it, and sometimes you love someone, and sometimes you fall out of love with someone, and we're always quick to remind people that love is a choice, and I want to be quick to remind you this morning that so is joy. When you wake up in the morning, if you don't make it an intentional part of your day to spend some time with God, either in his word or in prayer or both, ideally, reminding yourself of who you are in Christ, reminding yourself of what God has done for you, you're not a very intelligent Christian. Can I just be blunt? And you're opening the door for joylessness to come in. 
Further, if you're not working every day to try to align who you say you are, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, with what Jesus has clearly taught in his word, if you're not trying to align what, how you're living with what you say you believe, same thing applies. You're opening the door to joylessness in your life. What does Jesus want for you? Jesus wants for you to have the same joy that he has. God called on him to complete a mission that none of us would ever want to complete, to come and to be tried in a kangaroo court and to be convicted on charges that were trumped up and then to die, to be beaten brutally and die in a crucifixion. And, and Jesus submitted himself and was obedient to the Lord, even unto death. And that filled him with joy. He was given a task to do, and he did it, and he did it perfectly. Folks, we are given a task to do, to live our lives according to God's word. Strive to do so. Strive for obedience to God's word. And experience the joy. The answer to the big question today is this. The source of our joy is what is real. Or the source of our joy is that what is real, what we believe, and how we live are in alignment. A.K.A. that we are abiding in Christ. Joy is, an import, is important to us because it supplies the fuel for us to persevere in this sinful world. This season is the time that we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus, that the word of God was made flesh and dwelled among us. And he is the only reason, the only reason that any of the things that I talked about today were true. So abide in him. Trust him as your savior. Believe in what he says, that it's true. And then grow in obedience to that which he has said. A couple ways of application just to wrap up here. Where in your life have you confused temporary pleasure for joy and what changes will you make? Where in your life have you confused temporary pleasure for joy? Again, the world is out there saying the, the way to joy is stuff. The way to joy is status. The way to joy is good looks, appearance. Uh, There's confusion. Secondly, uh, has it become real to you yet that God wants you to pursue joy? God has given us in his word what is required for us to pursue joy. And I think sometimes our joylessness, sometimes I'm, I'm trying to be as gracious as I possibly can here. I think that sometimes our joylessness that we experience as people is a bit self-inflicted. Because if we were asked the question, are you in God's word? Are you talking to God? Are you taking advantage of the fact that when he died on the cross and he breathed his last breath, the temple curtain was torn in two and we were given access to God through Jesus Christ? Are you taking advantage of that? Or are you leaving that on the table and wondering why your life is so joyless? What practices are sabotaging, sabotaging your pursuit of joy? You know, the, the, the Bible, 
a lot of mysticism get, kind of gets blended in with Christianity, and the Bible is so practical. It gives us everything that we need for life and godliness, and oftentimes what we need is just to hear the truth and to resolve to obey it. Let's do that. Let's, let's make that our resolution this, this new year coming up. Father, we thank you for the finished work of your son, Jesus Christ, and all that that means for us. It means that hope, victory, freedom, true freedom, and joy, and many other things are possible for us. Father, let us not be deceived by the schemes of the evil one who would tell us that we could just say the words, I trust Jesus as my Savior from sin, but we don't have to take any action. We don't, we don't really need to do anything. We just need to recite those words. That's a scheme of the devil, and we need to reject it. But let us walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Walk in the reality that blood was shed for our sake so that our sins could be cleansed and that we could walk in a new way of life. Let us, let us live that way. For your glory, Father, under the power of the Holy Spirit, with your word as our guide. In Jesus' name, amen.